My name is Jeremy Walker, and I'd like to welcome you to this podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that we work our way through the sermons preached by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Victorian pastor and preacher, and that you can follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or X as it's now called, or you can find us at mediagratii.org slash podcasts and sign up there to a weekly newsletter where you'll get a link to the featured sermon. This week, the sermons we're reading are from 1011 to 1017, and our featured sermon, a representative sample, is 1013. If you're interested in seeing more, you can search for From the Heart of Spurgeon on Amazon, and you can find there a book from the first volume of the new Park Street pulpit, where you can see the featured sermons from that first volume. So do check that out. Do check out Media Gratii. uh, And do, if you can, leave a message or a review uh, for this podcast. It apparently makes a real difference uh, when we get those kinds of reviews, especially if you're living outside the United States. So thank you for listening. and glad you're with us today as we look at Sermon 1013, which is entitled Our Watchword. It was delivered on the Lord's Day morning of the 1st of October, 1871. Spurgeon preached it at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington in London, and his text was Psalm 70, verse 4. Let such as love thy salvation say continually, let God be magnified. Now, Spurgeon begins by making a few comments more generally. Uh, First of all, that this is one of three occurrences of this phrase in the book of Psalms, and therefore to be regarded as particularly important. And then, here and in the 40th Psalm, the holy saying is put in opposition to the ungodly speeches of persecutors, telling us, says Spurgeon, that the earnestness of the wicked should be a stimulus to the fervency of the righteous. Surely, if God's enemies do not spare blasphemy and profanity, if they are always upon the watch to find reasons for casting reproach upon the name and church of Christ, then we ought to be more than equally vigilant and diligent in spreading abroad the knowledge of the gospel which magnifies the name of the Lord. Would to God, praise the preacher, that his church were half as earnest as the synagogue of Satan. And then a third introductory comment that the clause selected for the text follows immediately after one which may be looked upon as a stepping stone to it. So we, we should read, Let all those that seek you rejoice and be glad in you, and let such as love your salvation say continually, Let God be magnified. We must seek salvation before we can love it. The fresh convert has his business mainly within. We want to be glad in the Lord, but then... Uh, as there's maturity and development. It's the the main concern to studiously seek the good of fellow creatures and the glory of God. We're, We're now less concerned with our own peace and joy and more concerned with the good of others. Strong men, says Spurgeon, have strength given them that they may bear burdens and perform labors. Light is this burden and blessed is this labor. The suggestion then is that as you mature, this concern spreading or wider appetite for the magnifying of God's glory and the blessing that he brings to others will be more a part of your experience. Now Spurgeon has three headings here for this sermon. The first is the character, then the saying, and then the wish. And he's got quite an interesting structure. 
uh, as he often does in some of these sermons at least. He starts to run out of space before he gets to the end and has to start packing in things tighter and tighter. What's particularly interesting is that the the first heading has about three layers to it, as far as I can tell, where he's drilling down into this this statement that is made, uh, the character of the people and the response that they have to God in his salvation. So when he's dealing with the character, he talks about the people that he's dealing with, and then he says, what is it then that uh, is in salvation that the thoughtful believer loves? And he says it's the saviour and it's the plan of salvation and it's the object of salvation. But then he says, I want to dig into that a little bit deeper. We love his salvation because of particular characteristics which delight, uh, which delight us. It's matchless love, the safety that's displayed, the completeness of it. And so you almost got this spiralling down into the text that we'll look at as we work through. So then, let's begin, says Spurgeon, by discriminating the character. Here's his first heading. The individuals here spoken of are those who love God's salvation. Then it is implied that they are persons who are saved because it is not according to nature to love a salvation in which we have no part. We may admire the salvation which is preached, but we shall only love the salvation which is experienced. So you have to be a Christian to love this salvation. You may desire it, you may admire it, but until you're a believer, you cannot delight in it in this way. And then Spurgeon goes on that to sustain and bring to perfection in the renewed heart an ardent affection toward the divine salvation of a sort that will continue and become practically fruitful, there must be an intelligent consideration and an instructed apprehension as to the character of this salvation. In other words, this is spoken by those who have grasped the truth of this salvation that is accomplished. It's a great pity, he says, that so many professing Christians have only a religion of feeling and are quite unable to explain and justify their faith. They live by passion rather than by principle. Religion is in them a series of paroxysms, uh, attacks or violent assaults in the emotion, a succession of these deep feelings. They've just been stirred up uh, and the feelings themselves, although they are uh, stimulating, aren't actually grounded in anything substantial. Spurgeon says, rather, I wish to God that all of us, after we have received Christ, meditated much upon his blessed person and the details of his work and the various streams of blessings which leap forth from the central fount of Calvary's sacrifice. All scripture is profitable, but especially those scriptures which concern our salvation. Some things lose by observation. They are most wondered at when least understood, but the gospel gains by study. No man is ever wearied in meditating upon it, nor does he find his admiration diminished, but abundantly increased. Blessed is he who studies the gospel both day and night and finds his heart's delight in it. So although we sometimes uh, see in Spurgeon perhaps a a hint of a, a Victorian sentimentality, he himself is seeking to have a religion that is not mere affection or um, emotion, but but true, uh, grounded truth that bears uh, a, a sweet and sincere affection as a consequence of it. 
The man who receives the gospel superficially, he warns, and holds it as a matter of impression and little more, being quite unable to give a reason for the hope that is in him, lacks that which would confirm and intensify his love. So if you want to love God's salvation, then you must study the Saviour and that salvation. You must dive into its depths. You must uh, plumb the, the profundities of God's saving work. And now Spurgeon moves on, and, and this is where he's going to do that, that first step down in that spiral into the text. What is it in salvation that the thoughtful believer loves? And first of all, says Spurgeon, it's the Saviour himself. Often our Lord is called salvation because he is the great worker of it, the author and finisher, the alpha and the omega of it. He who has Christ has salvation. And as Christ is the essence of salvation, he is the centre of the saved one's affection. And that's why we need to uh, consider Christ if we are going to say, let God be magnified on account of his salvation. But then it's not only the Saviour's person, it's also the plan of salvation. And Spurgeon sums that up in the single word, substitution. He says, I know no other gospel, and let this tongue be dumb rather than it should ever preach any other. Substitution is the very marrow of the whole Bible, the soul of salvation, the essence of the gospel. We ought to saturate all our sermons with it, for it is the lifeblood of a gospel ministry. We must daily show how God the judge can be just and yet the justifier of him that believes. We must declare that God has made the Redeemer's soul a sacrifice for sin, making him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And then we love God's salvation when we consider the object of it, to redeem to Christ a people who should be zealous for good works. The sinner, says Spurgeon, loves a salvation from hell, but the saint loves a salvation from sin. Anybody would desire to be saved from the pit, but it's only a child of God who longs to be saved from every false way. We would be content to be poor, he says, but we cannot be content to be sinful. We could be resigned to sickness, but could not be satisfied to remain in alienation from God. We long for perfection, and nothing short of it will content us. And because this is guaranteed to the believer in the gospel of Christ, we love his salvation, and we would say continually, let God be magnified. So we are saved in this salvation from selfishness, pride, lust, worldliness, bitterness, malice, sloth and uncleanness, says Spurgeon. And it's that holiness in those who once were sinful that Spurgeon marvels at. And now he digs down again. Here's that third spiral. And, and again, we're not suggesting that this is something that should happen in every sermon any more than we're intimating that Spurgeon does it over and over again. But it's, it's interesting that under this first heading, he, he makes really two or three points. And then his third point launches him into the next three points, which carry forward the thought of that last point. And then the third of those points gives us another launching pad for the, the next three thoughts. So you're really stepping down deeper and deeper into the text. And again, for preachers, it's good for us perhaps to, to pause and say, uh, is that a good way for us to do it? Is that something that we could accomplish? And so as he comes down to this third level, he's really trying to excite our, our holy affections. What is it that makes us delight in this studied out salvation? 
And he's really doing what he's saying, isn't he? You need to understand salvation uh, as accomplished by the Savior, as uh, carried out by Christ on behalf of sinners to bring them to God. So what is it in this that would so delight us? Well, the first thing is the matchless love that's displayed in it. Why should the Lord have loved men, such insignificant creatures as they are, compared with the universe? Why should he set his heart upon such nothings? But more, how could he love rebellious men who have wantonly and arrogantly broken his laws? Why should he love them so much as to give up his only begotten? These are things we freely speak of, but who among us knows what is their weight? Brothers, he pleads, our hearts must be harder than adamant and made of hell-hardened steel if we can at once believe that we are saved and yet not love, intensely love, that salvation which was devised by Jehovah's heart. He's saying, if you understand it, how can you not delight yourself in it? How can you not uh, love this wonderful salvation that God has accomplished and provided? But it's not just that it's a display of divine love, he says. It's also so safe, so real, and so true. Did God lay on Christ my sin? Was it really punished in him? There's that note of substitution again, if you hear it. Then there cannot exist a reason why I should be condemned, but there are 10,000 arguments why I should be forever accepted in the beloved. And then salvation is complete. By this atonement we are infallibly, effectually, eternally saved, for he has become the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. How we love this salvation. Our inmost heart rejoices in it. I rejoice to preach it, brothers, and I delight to muse upon it, says our preacher, appropriating it to myself by faith in solitary thought. How it makes the tears stream down one's cheeks with joy to think he loved me and gave himself for me. He took my sins and he destroyed them. They have ceased to be. They are annihilated. They are blotted out like a cloud and like a thick cloud they have vanished. And so he concludes this first point on the character of those who speak as saying that we should have lost sanity as well as grace if we did not love this salvation beyond the choicest joys of earth. But having seen the character of the speaker, now he wants to meditate on the saying. Behold, he says, the idiom, the the characteristic speech of gracious souls. Listen to their household word, their common proverb. This is that watchword imagery in the title of the sermon. And he says, the watchword of the saints, the household word of God's people is, let God be magnified, let God be magnified. And if we love his salvation, he says, then, then then this is why we will say these things. First of all, because it's a saying founded upon truth and justice. Let God be magnified, for it is he that saved us and not we ourselves. We trace our salvation not to our ministers nor to any pretentious priesthood. None can divide the honours of grace, for the Lord alone has turned our captivity. He decreed our salvation, planned it, arranged it, executed it, applied it and secures it. From beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord, and therefore let God be magnified. Then this saying is naturally suggested by love. If we love God's salvation, then to say the Lord be magnified follows quite naturally from it. 
I should know it to be infinite mercy that saved any one of you or all of you. I say I should know it, but in my own case, I feel it is an unspeakable and inconceivably great mercy which has saved me. And he says, I suppose each brother here, each sister here, will feel a special love to Christ from the fact of being himself or herself an object of his love. To know that God has loved me, Christ has loved me, Christ has given himself for me, that's something that is going to to, to prompt us to say, the Lord be magnified. Then it's a deeply sincere and practical saying. It is not an expression without meaning. It's not just godly chat and nothing more. It's substantial and it's real. It means that we're going to work out this salvation. Then not only sincere, but paramount, first and foremost in our thinking and feeling. It should be with us, our end and aim ever, to glorify him who redeemed us by his most precious blood. You're a citizen, but you're more a Christian. You're a father, but more a child of God. You're a laborer, but most of all a servant of the Most High. You're wealthy, but yet more enriched by his covenant. You are poor, but you are most emphatically rich if Christ is yours. And so the first chief leading lordly master thought within you must be this. Let God be magnified. Now, if you don't have the uh, the sermon in front of you as you're listening to this, and uh, perhaps many of us had just, just be listening uh, as we we're about our regular business, at this point, Spurgeon's really just uh, shooting from the hip. Uh, now, I don't mean he's unprepared in that sense, but all of these are really brief and, and pithy statements in the context and proportion of the sermon as a whole. And, and, and this is where he's given the bulk of his thought and he realises that he's got almost too much material under this heading, but he's still uh, really intense as he runs through it. So you've got this foundation of truth and justice. You've got the suggestion of love. You've got something deeply sincere and practical. You've got something that is paramount of first importance, but the text also says it's continual. Oh, for more of the deep-seated principle of intense love to God's salvation, steady and abiding, which shall make a man say continually, let God be magnified. As though we were bulls shot out of a rifled cannon, we would rush on, never hesitating or turning aside, but flying with all speed towards the centre of the target. A a rifled cannon is one that that imparts a a rotation to the the ball or the the bullet as it's shot out of the the cannon itself or whatever else, uh, whatever firearm you might be talking about. But it it gives it both... uh, Uh, more accuracy and it sustains it in its flight. And Spurgeon's using this imagery. May our spirits be impelled by a divine energy towards this one only thing. Spurgeon's saying, compare a proper rifled bullet to a, a, a mere musket ball and a Christian man who knows the salvation of the Lord is going to have that kind of sustained intensity. The Lord be magnified, whether I live or die, may God be glorified in me. And so this saying should be universal among the saints, all of us, women as well as men, illiterate as well as learned, poor as well as rich, silent as well as eloquent, should after our own ability say, let God be magnified. Oh, would to God we were all stirred up to this. Our churches seem to be half alive, he moans. Oh God, the Holy Ghost, make the church alive right through from the crown of its head to the sole of its foot, so that the whole church may cry continually, 
Let God be magnified. I do love the way that Spurgeon interjects these these prayers of a line or two into his sermon. He's profoundly conscious, not just of the people who are in front of him, but the God who is over him. And then the cry is an absolute one. Only let God be magnified, cries the child, and he may do what he wills with me. As a poor soldier in the regiment of Christ, I only care for this, that he may win the day. And if I see him riding on his white horse and know that he is conquering, though I lie bleeding and wounded in a ditch, I will clap my hands and say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Spurgeon's trying to emphasize here that this is our first and chief delight, and whatever else it may cost us to have it fulfilled, we we will gladly do that for his glory's sake. There's no limit then to persons or places. My heart says, let God be magnified among the Wesleyans. The Lord be magnified among the independents. The Lord be magnified among the Episcopalians. The Lord be magnified among the Baptists. We pray very earnestly, let God be magnified in the tabernacle, but we would not forget to cry, let God be magnified in all parts of London, in all counties of England and Scotland and Ireland. We desire no restriction as to race. Let God be magnified both in France and in Prussia, in Turkey and in Italy, in the United States and in Australia, among any and every people. This is Spurgeon's true ecumenism. Now, we know, we've seen, and and will doubtless see again his absoluteness of conviction about the path that he is following. He is what he is because he believes that is what God requires him to be, but he is not narrow-hearted. You might say, well, he would think that God's magnification in some of these other groups would mean that they would become more like him. Well, if you believe that that's how God's magnified, it's not a lack of love to desire it, but there's an earnestness in the plea here. All nationalities, he says, sink before our relation to our God. Christians are cosmopolitan. We're burgesses of the new Jerusalem. There is our citizenship. We're free men of the entire new creation. What is all else to God's glory? So long as the Lord is glorified, let the empires go and the emperors with them. Let nations rise or fall. So long as he comes whose right it is to reign, let ancient dynasties pass away if his throne is but exalted. And now he says, we had much to say under our second head, but time will not tarry for us. There's that sense again that he's he's trying to pack uh, more than he legitimately can into the time that he has available to him. And therefore we must proceed to the last the last of his headings, which is the wish. Holy David and David's perfect Lord both wish that we may say, let God be magnified. So we've got those who love God's salvation. We've got this desire that the Lord would be magnified. And now we've got this wish that we would actually say it. Why should we have that wish? Why should we wish for these things? First, because it always ought to be said, let God be magnified. Things are out of joint if God the Redeemer be not glorified. Surely the wheels of nature revolve amiss if God the loving and gracious be not greatly magnified. As every right-hearted man desires to see right and justice done, therefore does he wish that those who love God's salvation may say continually, let God be magnified. We wish it next because it always needs saying, because the world is dull and sleepy and utterly indifferent to the glory of God in the work of redemption. And so we need to be saying this and responding to the wish. Again, we say it because it continually does good to the sayers. 
He who blesses God blesses himself. We cannot serve God with the heart without serving ourselves most practically. And then again, this promotes the welfare of all God's creatures. I have been told, and believe it is the general impression, says Spurgeon, that at this particular time there is a great cessation of the zealous spirit which once ruled among Christians. And his concern now is that if the wrath of God is abiding upon the sons of men and they don't know Christ, this is how we should be feeling. I fear, he says, there is among those who conduct the affairs of missions too little of faith and too much of bastard prudence, which last had better be banished to the bottomless pit at once, for it has long been the clog upon the chariot wheels of the gospel. What does he mean by this? He's saying, well, we've we've put faith into the background. Work is viewed in a mercantile light. It becomes a, a an equation of finance and and, and and reason. So much money, so many men, so many conversions. But it's not like that, says Spurgeon. God does not work according to arithmetical rules and calculations. And we need to make sure that without acting foolishly, we act faithfully. Few can bring the charge of fanaticism against the English Baptists, he says. We've been too solid, if not stolid, for that. I almost wish it were possible for us to err in that direction, for if an evil, it would at any rate be a novelty, if not an improvement. And he says, where does this come from? Brothers, he says, I believe we've feared that we will not accomplish what we've set out to do. I believe he responds to that. It is the duty of the Christian church to go on working quite as earnestly and zealously and believingly if there be no conversions as if half the world were transformed in a 12 month. Our business is not to create a harvest, but to sow the seed. If the wheat does not come up, if we've sown it aright, our master does not hold us responsible. So he says, we, we, we cannot give up just because we don't think we're seeing the outcomes that we might have wished. All the more reason to keep marching up and down and to say, let God be magnified. We must persevere in the siege and with feats of strength and schemes of art until we last see the progress that we desire. If the Greeks could do that in attacking Troy, how much more the children of God in laying siege to the kingdom of darkness. We are the people of God. We're the children of the Lamb. We're the armies of the King of Kings. Don't give up, says Spurgeon. Let us say continually, let God be magnified. Let us still continue to attack the adversary. We're few, but strength lies not in numbers. The Eternal One has used the few where he's put aside the many. In our weakness lies part of our adaptation to the divine work. Only let us gather up fresh faith and renew our courage and industry, and we shall see greater things than these. You that love the Lord, says Spurgeon, you who love his salvation, vow it in your souls, determine it in your hearts, and... God the Holy Spirit being with you, if you have but faith in him, it will be no empty boast and no vain vaunting. God shall speak and it shall be done. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And such being the case, nothing is impossible to us. Here then is a fairly typical Spurgeonic sermon. He often seeks to stir the saints to endeavour, to energetic pursuit of the glory of God. And so he concludes, May the Lord stir us up with these thoughts and fling us like firebrands into the midst of his church in the world to set both on a blaze with love through the love that burns in our hearts. Let God be magnified. Amen 
and amen. And I trust then that uh, although it's it's a poor thing in itself, and perhaps even if you read through the sermon, you might say, well, it's, it doesn't seem to be the most excellent sermon. He's uh, pulling the text around, uh, trying to fit it into the time that he's got available. He's uh, covering more of this and less of that. I hope you'll at least get something of Spurgeon's appetite for the glory and the honour of his God and Saviour, and that he will be like a firebrand flung into our churches and that we'll catch light and others will catch light from us in, in consequence. Well, thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week as we read from 10.18 to 10.24 in the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit. If you're following along, that means we're almost at the end of volume 17, which is magnificent going. And next week's featured sermon is Household Salvation, Sermon 1019 from Acts and chapter 16. So do join us on that occasion if you're able to. And again, thank you for listening. We appreciate it and we trust it is a blessing to you.